Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's a pleasure to welcome you to this screening of God in the Inner City by producer, director Michael Pack, and we're delighted uh, to have with us again. This event is sponsored by the James Madison program through its Alpheus T. Mason's lecture, uh, Mason lectures and is made possible by the generous support of John P. Hansel, class of 46. And as always, we're very, very grateful to Mr. Hansel for his support of the Madison program. The film we will be viewing was first broadcast nationally on PBS on June 23rd of 2003. It features the work of Reverend uh, Jean Rivers of Boston, uh, whom we had with us in the Madison program at our Conference on Faith and Secularism in the Fall, and others who work in the inner city uh, in the ministry. These are people on the front lines in dealing with teens at risk with crime and drugs. This documentary also reviews the controversy over government support for faith-based institutions with interviews by Barry Lynn, the executive director of Citizens United for the Separation of Church and State and one of my favorite sparring partners, Richard Land of the Southern Baptist Convention, a Princeton grad, and John DiULio, Frederick Fox Leadership Professor of Politics, Religion, and Civil Society at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, our former colleague uh, here and my close friend, uh, who was, of course, President Bush's first director of the Office of Faith-Based and Community Initiatives. At the end of the documentary, you will have the opportunity to ask questions of the film's executive director uh, and producer, Michael Pack. Uh, Michael is former president of Manifold Productions, Inc., an independent film and television company based in Chevy Chase, Maryland, and his credits include some wonderful documentaries, uh, including uh, one that we uh, showed here, Rediscovering George Washington. Uh, he's also done The Fall of Newt Gingrich, The Rodney King Incident, Campus Culture Wars, uh, and America's Political Parties. I think, although I don't have it on my list here, he's also the uh, did with Michael Medved the very interesting and important work on Hollywood versus religion. He also currently serves on the National Council of the Humanities, which oversees the National Endowment uh, for the Humanities. It's a real privilege to welcome um, Michael Pack uh, back to Princeton. Uh, he'll uh, introduce the film, and then uh, we'll show the film, as I say, and then we'll have some questions and answers. So please join me in welcoming our friend Michael Pack. Well, th uh, thank you all for coming, and, and thank you for that nice introduction, Robbie, and thanks to everyone at the James Madison Center for putting the event together, Shauna and Judy and everyone else. I think I would rather take questions after the movie, so I, I'll just say a few words. I mean, it's it's been a while since I produced it. It does feel like another life. Now I'm actually at the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, although I'm here in my old persona as an independent producer and not a representative of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Uh, I hope you like the show. You know, it took us years to do it. We first began to think of it when Robbie's former colleague, Jean Delia, mentioned it to us something like five, six years ago, and in many years of gestating and searching and looking for money and looking for subjects and putting it together, we finally put it together. And, I, and I, I found the making of this film an inspiring and moving experience. I mean, I, it is not an uncritical look at these programs, and they're very different. And the problems and tensions and issues of the three that we examine as emblematic of the movement as a whole are very different. But I found it a moving and inspiring experience, and I hope you do. And I, I found these people who are working with these really core problems in the inner city amazing to, for people to spend every day, day after day, year after year, slogging away, dealing with drug addiction and youth violence is, is, you know, is uh, something that is, is moving to see and something I can barely aspire to. But I, I hope you like the film, and I would rather answer sort of the particular questions after it's over. So thank you again.
and I'll talk to you about it later. Thanks. Major funding for this program has been provided by the Pew Charitable Trusts. Thank you. Anyone have any questions? Yes, you, sir. Well, I mean, we didn't actually look at – I didn't personally visit any of them, so, so I don't know. I mean, there's, there's less um, Nation of Islam presence in the inner city than you actually think, right? I mean, I, I think that there, there's a lot more – Yeah, prisons more. That's true. I encountered only one sort of Nation of Islam group, and that was sort of in the neighborhood – in the Gene Rivers neighborhood. And I, I kind of – they were not – that particular group, for whatever reason, was not particularly anxious to have me hang around. So I do not – they were less open in general and more suspicious. So I don't know. I think that's, that's, that's a good question. And I, I think there's – although it's, it's the, the president has been careful to say that the office of faith-based and community initiative is open to people of all faiths, I, I see even in the area where Gene Rivers is that there's Nation of Islam competition and, and tension. So I, I don't know. I, I don't have personal experience. You sort of hear mixed things. My sense from talking to John, talking to John Yulia, is that the success rates are impressive with Nation of Islam in the prisons, which is where John originally did his work and, and encountered them. Now, whether there are other issues right, that I or John or others may have with them, that's that's another thing. But just on the question of success, John's view is expressed to me is that, that it's impressive. Yeah, I mean, success rates are, bit, are, are tough to measure, right? A lot of you know, who's measuring them. I mean, that's the sort of you know, you need outsiders doing big studies. You know, you end up these people relying on these individuals, these indiv it, these people who have these inner city ministers, their own counting, and you know, they're not they're notoriously bad people of all faiths in counting and tracking exactly what's going on. I mean, that's not sort of what their focus is. And actually, John Julio, since he is a social scientist, he set up the Amachi program to have that kind of component where there was a secular group actually keeping close track. I mean, that, that's sort of the, the, the issue. What really are the success rates? What's really the data? So John created the Amashi program to be citywide, a big enough area to be meaningful and to be, um, have a big data collection component from a reliable third-party source, which I think is important. And, and I don't know that they've done that with the Nation of Islam groups. Michael, did the did the, did the fellow that you followed in Teen Challenge, did he make it? Yeah, he made it. I mean, and, and in fact, uh, Mike Zella, the, the minister who, who ran the program that he went through, after this film was over, then set up a different program to um, deal with what these people do after their year of Teen Challenge. You know, it's a re-entry program. And actually, that guy Larry is in Mike Zella's re-entry program in Charlottesville. So... It, that is a success story, although, I mean, it is the case, we try to say this, you know, the failures are far, far, far outweigh the successes, right? I mean, if it's 90% failure in secular programs, if it's 75% failure in, in a faith-based one, that's a huge improvement. But still, there are all these people going back to the streets. That was sort of one of the most amazing things, is you hang around these, these places long enough, you develop a 
relationship with these people and you kind of believe that they're going to turn their life around and then boom, one day they're gone. Now they're back you know, shooting heroin on the streets of, uh, of Baltimore. I mean, it's an amazing thing to me. I mean, it, you know, it was shocking. Uh, yes, ma'am. Yeah, I sort of have a common slash question. I think one thing that's been largely missing from this debate about faith-based versus secular um, social services is the point of view of the clients. That is, what do they want? Um, how do they, who do they feel better with? Is there a difference between going to a faith-based social service or a congregation versus going to a welfare agency? And I asked this question recently to Bob Woodnow, who's a professor of sociology who's coming out with a book um, any day about uh, social services. It's based on one study in Allentown, but it actually compares and has a lot of information from the clients, and what they say is that they would, they would choose first to go to a congregation for any kind of social service, second to a faith-based organization, and third to a government agency. So, and I think what, what your movie shows very well is a very strong interpersonal connection of all three of the different models that you were showing. One is talking about Jesus, Gene Rivers is not talking about Jesus, but he's really getting involved in their life. And my feeling is that a lot of that interpersonal connection has been lost from government public service agencies. I think that is very true. I mean, I think that the, the Gene Rivers model where these, the, these churches are in these inner cities and have, especially ones more institutional than Gene's, where they've been there for generations. People have a trust factor. They expect them to still be there. So I think that you're right. And, and surely the Teen Challenge people... A lot of them are deeply, passionately committed to the version of evangelical Christianity that is being expressed in Teen Challenge. Be, you know, I, I, in there, I think Mike Zella was right. There are some people for whom that is clearly right, I, I, to me at least, as an observer. Not everybody. And actually, we, we, I've run into people who hated those programs and fled them, and one could understand that too. And you know, surely no one would advocate there wouldn't be a secular alternative for them. Yeah, I'm just trying to say that when we talk about success, you know, not, not only sort of in a single outcome, whether or not they get off drugs or not, but some other qualitative yeah. measures of satisfaction with the program or other types of benefits in these studies, you know, how are we talking about but, Well, Well, that's the thing. You know, in order for the success rates not to be pathetic, they end up defining it very low. Like being off, usually success is like being off drugs for two months, three months. The, the, nor, the, the, I think the viewer, the, the average person is thinking of success rates as not being on drugs again forever. <laughs> Hardly ever is that measured. For one thing, it's too long to track, and who wants? To, they don't people want to encounter that. I, I think that, that. So you're right. I mean, it, it's it, it's hard it's hard to say what success is. And then I, I think that to some extent, the Zella model, the, the Teen Challenge model, where you're trying to get spiritual renewal, is even harder. Right. I mean, that's a hard thing. And and as he said I, to me off camera, you know they. It's the one that, that succeeds, that's the miracle. I mean, you know, that, that's the thing. I mean, to me, just being around these people who went back to drugs that I was personally involved in, I could barely take it the few months I hung around. What keeps these people believing? And it has like to Zello. be like Zello. I mean, I mean, I get discouraged, you know, I mean, I, must be, I may be particularly pathetic, but I got discouraged in my <laughs> brief stay. These people spend decades there. It has to be that one miraculous one, the belief that that, that saving that one soul. Is, you know, it's that that's meaningful. And that is sort of what we mean, and that's, so, that's even rarer than what the success rates tend to prove or, or, or measure. You know, you know Michael, uh, you know, very often people perceive, people in the debate uh, perceive the issue of one as one of, uh, well, you have this person, this abstract person, and the question is, shall we hit him with a faith-based program or shall we hit him 
right. with a secular program as if he's neutral. And I don't know anything about the inner city. I grew up in West Virginia. We have a different <laughs> set of uh, issues there, but they're also about poverty and all of the, the social pathologies that are attached to modern uh, uh, poverty. Well, the reality is we don't have any abstract anybody, at least in West Virginia. Yeah. I imagine that's also true of the inner city. Where I grew up, people are religious. I mean, even the guys who you know, get drunk and raise hell and cause havoc and end up in jail, which several of my classmates have ended up, they, it's not as if they are secular. They're not secular. You know, they, they, they have religious sensibilities. They're raised in a religious culture. They understand things, things in religious terms. I mean, the reality is you come at those people with a secular program, you're just not talking about land. I mean, it's just not, it's not reality. You, you all know about the life of Hank Williams. He's very much like some of my some of my classmates. Well, you know, Hank ended up dead in the back of a Cadillac in actually Oakwood, West Virginia, and things didn't go well for him. But the times when he tried to get himself straightened up, it was really via religion because that was where he was. I mean, yeah. there was no option for sure. reaching him with a secular. You might as well come after him with a Zoroastrian program. It's yeah. going to be a program that's going to relate to his life at all. It's going to be a Christian program. Now, my sense is that the inner city, at least in some cases, it's not all that different. Well, that's right. I mean, uh and, and religion is the institution that these people are closest to, period. I mean, it's the other institutions that have been stripped away. Yeah. Uh, yes, uh, Jim? I, I'm um, someone who grew up in the United States in Chicago's West Side um, because of a faith-based, faith-based program there in Chicago. I'm wearing a suit and tie today. Um, and can say that... As opposed to stripes. Yeah, yeah. for example. For example. Uh, And what you're looking for, I think, whether you're in the inner city or you're going up in West Virginia, wherever you are, you're looking for a person who cares for you. And uh, whether they're working for a government agency or church volunteer, doesn't matter. What you're looking for is someone's going to give you human affection, essentially. You're you're probably more likely to find that in in a church volunteer than you are in in a... government bureaucrat who's working in, a, in, in an agency because they're getting paid for this job, whatever. Um, I'll also just want to echo what you said about you can't separate religion from life. Uh, in the inner city, especially Latino neighborhoods and black neighborhoods, uh, faith is much more prevalent and imbued in the culture and a part of daily life. And, and, and to try to extract it is just, it, it's artificial, it's weird, it doesn't work. And so a lot of, a lot of this these discussions of, of, okay, you can well, fund your secular programs but not your religious activities, it just doesn't make sense at the local level because you're dealing with one person. Yeah. It's I'm, really practical. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, and I also think in some ways that the, the, the divergence of these two approaches is exaggerated. I think you're right. They're looking for human involvement. And I saw in my research for this film, you know, plenty of volunteers and workers and secular programs that were extending that. I think it's true that with an institution like a church that's in the neighborhood, it has been, it's more likely to sustain. I mean, with some, like this kid, Juan, he's got problems and they're multi-year. They keep coming back because they're intractable, can't be solved by one quick intervention. And at least Ruben lives there and is going to be there and is connected with this church that Juan goes to. So there's a better chance that it'll last long. I mean, I I have seen also these faith-based mentors burn out. You know, I mean, just like social workers burning out. I mean, there's so, but I I think that I I have come away thinking there's a slight edge, but it isn't it isn't just black and white. I think you're right about that. And they all sort of tend to be together. You know, um, Ruben 
uh, works with this social worker who also works with Juan. I mean, it's not like they go, well, wait a second, you're a secular, I'm faith-based. You know, they're just kind of seeing who's got the time to deal with this kid. I mean, it's not, it's much less, it's more pragmatic and less filled with these abstract distinctions in practice. I, I agree with the, that sort of thrust of your comments as well. Yeah, and just one other thing, the, the people you profiled are extraordinary, really insightful. I mean, they're, they're have, they have an expertise in, in, in humanity and people it's, that I think comes from caring. I mean, well, why does the volunteer, the, the, the one who's helping uh, Ruben, terrific things, very insightful things, and I think just because he's thought about them, but how can I help this thing? It's just kind of extraordinary people. Yeah, I actually think these guys are really extraordinary too. Gene Rivers, Ruben, and uh, Mike Zello. I mean, really extraordinary. Even among the many more that I visited in their ability to articulate it, which is another thing. I mean, you don't have to be also articulate. It's a need for the film almost more than the person. But these, I thought they were extraordinary. I mean, we try to suggest that what the Amachi program is, is an attempt to mobilize less than extraordinary people. And Victoria, who you saw less of, because she's less exciting, is a, an ordinary person doing more ordinary things with Aja, who's less difficult, I think, than Juan. And that's sort of important, too. I mean, that suggests that, there's some, that these things can, can exist at a level less than an ex extraordinary one. But... Still, it's a, it was inspiring to be around these people, and I, as I said before the film, and, and I think that's right. I think those three people are extraordinary, and that's a great thing too. Professor Gary, I have a, a observation, sort of that leads into a question. Um, it's very clear when you look at Teen Challenge that it's a face-to-face project. Um, Eugene Rivers talks around that a bit, and he's. He claims to be providing secular services, but given who he is... Can you speak up, Jim? He, he, he's providing the secular service rivers, and he emphasizes that. But given who he is, I don't see how you can separate that. And my question is, um, how does he believe he could do that, or does he believe he can do that? Or, or is he saying that because the Barry Lynns of the world uh, want to believe it's possible to separate a, a, a faith-based mission from the kind of secular service that he provides. Are, are, we being, are we conditioned to say that because of uh, the way government treats religion? Or is that is that a real dichotomy that's possible in a program like that? I think that's a good question. I think it's sort of a little bit of both. I think Gene Rivers has a more secular disposition even though than, than a Mike Zello. I mean, the you know, I have been with Gene Rivers with, and with Gene, people who work with Gene Rivers, you know, others in the L.J. Baker House, talking to people in prison. When they asked questions where I thought, well, now he's, they're going to kind of say something about religion, and then they didn't. You know, people ask them about spiritual matters, and they answer in a secular way. And I think it's part because they're, they are conditioned to do that. But I think also that they are they're used to thinking of what they're... Their mode, though, is to talk to these kids that are not necessarily searching them out so much, that are in prisons and on the streets. You know, it's different than Teen Challenge, where these, these people are desperate. They're going to these kids that aren't so intense, necessarily moved to seek help, and they want to try to talk to them in their language. And they believe, whether they're right or not, I don't know, that the way to get them is not to evangelize them or bring up religion, but to try to talk to them about the things that make sense to them, jobs or 
you know, come here to a safe place or that. So I think that in a different world, in a different America, with less emphasis on that division, would their rhetoric and modality change? Maybe. So I, I think you're right that there's some of that where they're training themselves to do it because that's the, the sort of politically correct way to do it. But I also think that compared at least to someone as evangelistic as Teen Challenge, there's also a difference in sensibilities. I'd say a little both. What, what I find interesting about that uh, uh, comment is those some of you remember Gene Rivers' performance here at Princeton uh-huh. last year. And what he did was he, he, he came to us, uh, and uh, it was a very academic sort of conference, and, and he preached a sermon. Mm-hmm. And the sermon was directed in the most antagonistic possible terms to you secular liberal professors out there who think you know, I mean, you know, there was no doubt that he had an evangelical president. So it might be a concurrent streak in Gene. Yeah. I've seen him in his Harvard mode, which must be similar to the Princeton mode. It's very focused on that. I mean, to that, you know, yeah, that's right. Because he, think he, he uses sort of Avert, a kind of clean a version of his street rhetoric to shock and appeal to academic groups. I think that's a sort of uh, rhetorical strategy of genes. But yeah, it's... Reverend Rathbush? Yeah, I, I'm curious, uh, coming from kind of the, uh, the tradition, the social justice, social gospel tradition, and most recently the Riverside Church, where there's a big debate, like, should we accept money mm-hmm. for faith-based programs? Because, of course, we're serving a lot of people. We're, you know, we, we served a lot of people from Harlem, a lot of and a lot of very religious people involved in Riverside Church, and yet it's, it positions itself very much in the justice-oriented is, is, is uh, more uh, politically associated with the left. And I was wondering if you found that tension anywhere yeah. in, in, your, in your studies, or, or because that really is a debate going on on the, uh, the churches on kind of the other side of the political... How much of that, Paul, is a worry about the strings? About the... Well, it's very... Caesar's money, Caesar's strings are... I think there's worry about strings. I think there's also worry about um, a sense of um, is it appropriate to to tie in service to the gospel, or should be people be coming to the gospel on their own free will? And and are we kind of is it too much of a you know of a you know here come get this kind of thing? And there's an uncomfortability with these even even um, you know Riverside is largely a black church now, and uh, but. But it's, uh, it, there's still an uncomfortability with the combining those two things. Yeah, I, I think I, I have found that tension. I mean, on the left and on the right, Richard Land, who's more or less on the right, the Southern Baptist Convention guy in the film, he, that he, his position is it's okay for the government to give money to churches, but we Baptists won't take it because it is not good. It will hurt, hurt our activity or will, you know, will warp our message. Yeah. I, and then in... Gene Rivers's um, organization, which is sort of on the left, really, and, and uh, many of the others further than Gene, there is a sense too that maybe they shouldn't take government money, and there's a suspicion of the Bush program and where it's heading, actually. So there's that too on top of everything else. So, yeah, I, I think that on the, on the other hand, a lot, a lot of, the inter- of people running small churches in the inner city are desperate for money. Period. You know, they're not so, they're not at the sort of elevated level of the Gene Rivers and Richard Lands. They need money. They got money from the government. They take it. I mean, and that's it. It's not a big principle for them. They're desperate to sort of help people, and they need money. And it, you know, so there, there's that too. Mr. Hand, was your hand up? Yes, I'm wondering whether you observe any leaders in training, people who would eventually follow a Rivers or the pastor or the artisan. Did you see any kind of evidence that people were consciously bringing these people along? 
Yeah, I, I did. That's, that's sort of harder to spot. Um, in, the, in the part of the Gene Rivers stuff, the early stuff, there was, he was visited by these two ministers from Memphis who were actually thinking of setting up a, a Gene Rivers-like operation in Memphis, and they came to talk to him. And in fact, he, he is trying to set up similar s- structures in other cities. Um, and, at, you know, of course, Teen Challenges tries to do that as well. And, and, and Amachi, too, is trying to find, is already moving into other cities. And one thing we've done with this, with this program, and, it's, and are still doing it somewhat, is we have an outreach component where we've taken the show around to cities where people are trying to set up programs like this and shown it to them and tried to inspire focused debate, not just general questions like this, but more practical debate of how we could do it and what are the problems and what are the issues and what model works. So I, I think there, there are people out there. I, I do think that you know, there's a question of how charismatic do you have to be in order to make it work. I, I think that I do agree with the comment that these three were particularly charismatic in their different ways, but I do think you could accomplish a lot at sort of lower charisma levels. Um, so, you know. Yes, you, sir. Um, my question is, is more, first of all, I thought it was a terrific film, just from a uh, standpoint of a narrative, but I really enjoyed it. Yeah, can you speak up so that you're Sorry. Uh, I said, first of all, I enjoyed just the narrative of the film itself. Um, but uh, one thing I had a question about in terms of the difference between an abstraction and, and the sort of practical um, process that you were talking about is... Um, I understand the concept of the empty cup and it being filled. I thought that was a beautiful uh, analogy. Um, and at the same time, then he says, you know, it's not about the Holy Ghost, it's about you as a person. What are you going to do? My question is, was it, did you get any sense of, of what, um, what the process is in, the, in these organizations? Is it just work and prayer and, uh, and discipline? Where, where is it? Where's the becoming a man? Where's the, um, the sort of rite of passage? What are they trying to, yeah. to I mean, accomplish in order to, to gain that empowerment, that sense of empowerment? Yeah, I think that's a good question, actually. I mean, one of the reasons that it was hard to make the show is because that process is sort of an interior one. Uh, Marvin Alasky, who's written a lot on this subject, made, made this point to me once, that it's sort of like tender mercies. You know, it's something happening at the margins. You know, he was somebody who had... Take, took this inner city, uh, this, this girl from the inner city into his house, and she lived there, and recovering from drugs and all this. And he said, the, the one day, finally, we went through dinner, and there were no, there was no hysterics, and it was like an amazingly, it was an amazing moment. But you know, film that and try to show that to people, and have somebody say it's an amazing moment, and there's nothing. So it's yeah, this is become the man. Where is it? I mean. It's, it's in the edges of things, you know, how do you depict that? I mean, I never actually, in my opinion, since you brought up the narrative, succeeded in depicting that. I, I just thought it was too hard to depict. I took, like, some easy way out and did these sessions with Mike Zella. But it, it's sort of on the margins. It's overcoming things, like that guy who tr- packed his bags and ran away. Sometimes they pack the bags and they, then they don't go. You know, so they go th- going through something, something inner, some interior thing. Meanwhile, what are they doing? They're not doing anything. They're working in the store. They're eating lunch. They're they're sleeping up. It's all nothing. But inside, they're thinking things through. You know, they're going through things. Um, they're they're forming, coming to crises and making choices like the ones that I said that I was close to that then made the choice to go back. And they're not always the good choice. Not usually the good choice. 
and it's an interior process. I mean, they, they work it out in these sessions with Mike Zello in that case. Um, did, but you see, did you see also uh, the exterior? The ex is there some sort of um, involved with these programs? Is there some sort of uh, exterior program? I yeah. totally understand the, the interior. Well, it varies. It, you know, and, and the Teen Challenge one is primarily they do this work and the thrift shop, and then they go into the uh, they, then they take classes, and there's sort of a class component. And Teen Challenge, a lot of it is sort of Bible-related class, and then also things like managing your money a deep problem for these guys, and what to do with your, what are sort of proper relationships with family. I mean, one of the things that, with, I don't want to be only focused on two challenges because the process is different, but one of the things is these people have had multiple children with multiple wives and, or non-wives and have done horrible things to them and need to sort of forgive themselves and overcome it. And I mean, it's just the weight of these things is great. And they try to work that out through these classes as well as these sort of essentially therapy sessions with people like Mike Zello and work. And that's sort of the, the teen challenge model in these two phases, first locally and then in this place, Raresburg. And, you know, Gene Rivers, it's more like, you know, he's intervening in their lives. He's sort of there as a counselor. He doesn't, you know, he also has programs after-school program, computer training program, uh, you know, basketball programs, these programs, and then he has his sort of, you know, that he tries to get these kids through, each of which is different. But it's a matter really of sucking them into his orbit as much as anything else and being there, in his case, when there's a crisis, when suddenly, oops, when suddenly they're, yeah, when suddenly they're in jail or, you know, or they're in the courthouse, you know, turn to him, think about him, or, or not. So... Uh, Professor Mountain. I was just curious why Teen Challenge ended up, ended up with older people. Was it mm -hmm. that it didn't work too well? Yeah. Teens or well, the, or did the teens graduate into it? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think, I mean, it was started by, um, I'm trying to remember the name, a famous evangelical leader in the 60s as Teen Challenge in Brooklyn. And, um, he began with teen gang members, but I think they found that their model worked best with burned out drug addicts who found they had come to the end and were looking to find a way out. You know, rather than, rather than these teens, who I think do better with the intervention of a Gene Rivers. Although now, interestingly enough, Teen Challenge has gone back to try to develop teen-oriented programs. I mean, that's sort of their, one of their growth areas, if you want to call it that. But, the, the traditional team challenge program like this, I can see does work with these people who are burned out. I mean, otherwise, they're too drawn to go back. You know, they've, have, they've gone, almost all of them have gone through many other programs. You know, they've been detoxed a couple of times, you know. They've gone in and out. They've gone back and forth, in and out of jail. And then that's it, you know. So they're looking. You know, they're trying to find another way to fill that empty cup. I mean, and so I, I sense I get a sense of why it works with them, but they're definitely getting back to the team as well. But by the way, Gene Rivers himself began as a gang and yeah. was rescued by the legendary Reverend Ben Smith in Philadelphia. Uh, in Philadelphia. Yeah. yeah, that is true. Other questions? Uh, yes, ma'am. I just wanted to say I really enjoyed the film. I'm just wondering, as a psychologist at the Teen Challenge program, did they ever explain why the other people were in the room during these counseling sessions? Oh. Well, that's a good question. But the other people, I mean, so Mike Zella dominated it, but these other people are actually part of the organization of Teen Challenge, and they 
also run these sessions with them, and they're there to kind of help, and they, they, they have they know things that Mike Zilla doesn't know. I mean, so it's sort of a matter of it's only an hour. How many characters can you establish? Although I think it's interesting, like the the, the African American guy who's in the room with uh, Mike Zello is a graduate of the program, actually, and he was an interesting character in and of himself. A longer film with a more time, I think I would have established it. I mean, he and he's somebody I think that has not taken drugs for a long time at this point. You know, seven, eight years, an example of somebody who's kind of completely changed his life. But even he was talking about the day that his parents gave him, allowed him again to have keys to their apartment, you know, trust him not to go there and steal everything, as, you know, as, as a time that he broke down in tears, you know, even semi-recently. I think, it's sort of, I think the, the difficulty of success, the temptation to fall back, even after a long time, is, is a really significant thing. So these guys were there, and they had functions, and had I had, I don't know, more time, more art, I would have delineated them better, but they were there and, and doing things. Uh, yes, ma'am. Um, I believe Eugene um, Rembrandt said during uh, during the film that faith is the reason why he does what, the work that he does, but it's definitely like a secular message. The work that he does is actually isn't yeah. infused with any sort of religious message. And I'm just curious as to sort of how how contingent um, the services he provides are on like, sharing the same faith that he does. And that doesn't mean yeah. if, say, there are people in the community that are steadfast, atheists, agnostics, or of a different faith, will he still extend the services in the same way that he would for someone who is willing to yeah. to embrace like the Christian view? I think that's a good question. I think in his case, definitely. But in all cases, they would extend their help to anybody. In Gene Rivers' case, people who were clearly not very religious were asking for his help while I was there all the time. He's just in the neighborhood, and lots of people feel comfortable going to him that have no faith, faith connection, and surely are not in his church. His church is actually small. You know, his, his is more like a devotional community than a big inner-city church anyway. Now, I think in the case of Teen Challenge, anybody could go there too, but I think that you would not feel so comfortable there if you were not... You know, believe in Christian, they would accept you, but I don't know that you would feel that happy. I myself am Jewish, and they were constantly there was a, it was a made a, some efforts to convert me unsuccessfully. <laughs> <laughs> but I think you know, were I a drug addict, and I would not, I would, you know, like Mike Zell, it wouldn't be my place. I would turn to, even though they wouldn't turn me down. So you know, none of them turn you down, but I think it plays out a little differently. In Gene's case, though, I mean, would would he in his? I mean, this goes back to my West Virginia case, and it may be different in the inner city. But would he run into that many people who, whether or not they were religious or accustomed to speaking in religious terms or uh, and, and all that? I mean, would he run into people who are really hostile to religion, who would consider themselves atheists, or you know, for, for whom religion would be an issue, and they're opposed to that? I mean, it's, it, it never actually came up. In fact, though, one. I mean, is it like being in Princeton? Yeah. Right. <laughs> well, actually, Gene, Gene it, it's a little like being a, it's more like being a Christian than you think, right? Because a lot of these people, Gene took out of Harvard. Oh, okay. <laughs> and, 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 you know, one of the key people that he had there at the beginning and still is there a lot is a um, Israeli who's, an, in fact, an atheist, um, which I think is harder to imagine in Teen Challenge. Mm -hmm. So, um, but I, I think in practice, I have never heard anybody 
you know, express a different religious or a religious, a contrary religious notion to gene. I mean, they're not, it's sort of like not on their mind to engage in a theological discussion. Although, gene does have, with some of these sort of gang members, this Bible study session at night, which I actually tried to film and weave in. He, I mean, he has, of course, you know, services on Sunday, but he also holds these Bible study meetings with these gang members, these sort of huge, tough gang members, and it was interesting to see Gene talk about the Bible to them, and he was trying to get them to sort of see it. It wasn't so much that they were hostile to religion, it's that they, he was trying to give them some sort of concepts to look at it, other than what they sort of half got, being forced by their mothers and grandmothers to go reluctantly to church, right? That he was trying to get them from that relationship to religion to sort of an active, different relationship to religion. So that it took that form with those with that group. I think you had your hand up, sir. Most of the time, you had the sense that the folks you were filming didn't totally ignoring the camera and the uh, uh, like it wasn't there. Yeah. How how do you go about doing it? Do you have a camera on all the time, and so they got accustomed to it? Well, you know, it's the art of making these kind of films. I mean, I hung around a long time without a camera in all these places, a long time. So everybody sort of knew me. And the camera came, and I think that, you know, it was a matter of getting them used to it. It was different in, from different, in different places. Actually, the easiest one was the Mike Zello cases, because these people were so moved by other things that they just, didn't, they just forgot about it and then really didn't think about it. I think the others, you know, was a little harder and you had to get them used to it. And then they did forget about it. You know, I'm not sure they forget about it completely. Would it be different without a camera? Well, most of the time, they, you know, there's only a couple of scenes where they're looking at the camera and look away again. But the, you know, virtually all of them, you know, seem to be more... Yeah, you've got to hang around and get used to you. You know, it's an amazing, amazing process. So, but... I, I cameraman did a great job, Gary Griffin. I, I, it's only fair to say, anyway, that... I, I, I too am happy to think this film, I, I like this film, I made it, but it wasn't just me. <laughs> I think those that liked it, I should say, you know, the cameraman, the editor, you know, these things were made by these people and their skills and their abilities to get people to, you know, to make the thing work as a narrative and to get the camera and then, you know, I get to take advantage of them and take credit at, at later points, so it's only fair to give them a little credit, so... Well, uh, it's really... Oh, do you want to have one last question? Yeah, go ahead. If you don't mind well, asking well, a second. Certainly, yeah, one last question. We'll... Uh, one of the things that's been really valuable about this presentation and the discussion is the variety of approaches there. That there's not a false dichotomy between all secular programs are alike and all faith-based programs are alike. There's tremendous variety there. And I've been searching in my mind to see what if there's anything that you can use to, to compare them or find any common denominator. And that, at least in the discussion, the thing that's come out only is the personal commitment, the charisma from the faith-based programs. But are there distinctions to be made there? I mean, say denominationally, is Catholic charisma better than Pentecostal charisma, <laughs> better than Southern Baptist charisma, or, or anything like I mean, of these different approaches, is anything denominationally based that uh, affects them? I don't know. I mean, I, I think that's sort of hard, harder for me to say. I mean, I, I think that, um, you know, I, I do feel, just to go back to the, the premise under, underlying this, I mean, I guess I came to feel in the course of working on this show uh, agreement with John DiLeo's last point, that even though these are all different and these people do not share the same religious views and don't share the same views of the inner city and don't share the same politics in, in lots of cases, 
I do feel there's a movement that unites them. It, it may be hard to say what it is, but I think it is actually a movement that these people are all in the same, broadly speaking, social movement, you know, even, even with all that diversity. And I, try, I think the film is an attempt to try to give a sense of what that is without being simplistic and without denying all these differences. I think there is a social movement, and I do think that if it, with the, over time, with leadership, with greater sort of societal commitment to it, it could sort of grow and have an impact and you know, change these really in, hard to deal with problems in the inner city. So I, I do think there's something underneath it. I'm not sure other than making the film I can articulate it better, but I think it's a good question. Uh, I think it's a good question too, and, and uh, I think it could even be refined further perhaps. I mean, uh, Professor Whitnell has uh, made so many of us cognizant of the ways in which the lines of division, uh, theological, ideological, and so forth, no longer run so much uh, between the various denominations as right through uh, the denominations with, in, in many respects, uh, uh, conservative Catholics having much more in common with uh, evangelical Protestants and Orthodox Jews than they have with their co-religionists who are the more liberal Catholics, who in turn would have more in, in, in common with more liberal Protestants and more liberal Jews. So, I, I and, and of course, to take the Catholic example, which I think is the largest uh, one in, in, in the country, it would be interesting if you could study it, if you had a social scientist like Giulio who could do the work, to look at the how it's done by the more traditional or conservative Catholic groups like Mother Teresa and Sisters of Missionaries of Charity who are active in inner cities around the country in various programs, and those that are more, what shall we say, mainstream, uh, the, the sort of standard Catholic charities type uh, organizations, and see... If, a, the differences in how it's done, and B, the success rates. I mean, I don't know how it would come out, but interesting come out. Yeah, it would be a good thing to yeah. cut for. Well, look, uh, it's always a pleasure to have Michael Packer. He's one of the people that we just have to have back every year. So, Michael, I'm glad you were back for the third time, uh, although this is our fourth year, so it'll be the fourth time next year and our fifth year. Before I ask you to join me, uh, both in thanking Michael and, and in a reception in his honor outside, let me just uh, do a little commercial advertisement for our next few events. Uh, tomorrow... Uh, at 12.30 in Bobst Hall. We're featuring our very distinguished visiting fellow, Michael Gerhardt, uh, a constitutional scholar who will be talking about can the United States Supreme Court constrain itself, an inquiry into the limited path dependency of precedent. I'm not quite sure what limited path dependency of precedent is, but I'm sure interested in the question, can the United States Supreme Court constrain itself? And I think perhaps some of you would be interested in that as well. Lunch will be served. Uh, it's uh, 12.30 uh, in Bobst Hall. And then on Monday, March 22nd, uh, Eric Cohen, who's the resident scholar and director of Project on Biotechnology and the American Democracy at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, will be here to speak on biotechnology, America, and the spirit of capitalism. It's easy to see what very interesting questions arise uh, among uh, that trio, biotechnology, America, uh, and capitalism. That one will be at 4.30 in the afternoon right here in Computer Science 104. Again, Monday, March 22nd, 4.30, uh, Eric Cohen, Biotechnology America, the Spirit of Capitalism. Then one other event that I'm so uh, excited about, and I hope that uh, you'll uh, all uh, attend this one, Friday, uh, April 2nd, and Saturday, April 3rd, uh, with the very uh, wonderful help of our colleague Fred Greenstein, we're sponsoring a conference on the early American presidents and bringing in some of the nation's most distinguished historians and political scientists to uh, discuss 
George Washington, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, and Alexander Hamilton. There will be presentations on uh, each of those. Now, of course, we all know that Hamilton wasn't a president, but we just couldn't help ourselves, and we inserted him uh, anyway. Uh, Gordon Wood from Brown University will be giving one of the major presentations. Our own Barbara Oberg, who uh, Oberg, who works on the uh, Jefferson Papers here, will be giving a major presentation. Lance Banning, uh, Alan Taylor, it's, it's just a, an all-star uh, cast on the early American uh, presidents. Again, that's Friday and Saturday, April 2nd uh, and 3rd. Of course, we'll have more information about location down the line, but that's one I think you'll want to book. And now I would invite you to join me in thanking Michael Pack and a reception in his honor right outside.